from HerbMentor.com. This is HerbMentor Radio. You're listening to Herb Mentor Radio and HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. My guest today is Timothy Lee Scott. Timothy is an acupuncturist and herbalist from Vermont with a master's in traditional Chinese medicine. His new book, Invasive Plant Medicine, demonstrates the ecological benefits and healing abilities of invasive plants. Timothy studied extensively with Stephen Buhner, who wrote the foreword to his book. Working with Buhner led him to work in the area of Lyme's disease treatment, and he later formed Green Dragon Botanicals to provide remedies to the greater Lyme community. You can visit Tim at InvasivePlantMedicine.com and GreenDragonBotanicals.com. Welcome, Tim. Hey, thank you, John. You know, thanks, thanks for thanks for being here, and it was just really great to meet you at the Traditions in Western Herbalism conference in New Mexico. That was a great event, and and uh, when I saw your yeah. book, it was an impulse buy for sure. <laughs> it was one of those Good. books you just don't think about. You know, you don't like. Do I need this? It's like, oh, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> Having having um you know used so many invasive plants myself over the years, <laughs> um, uh, that it's it's uh it's it was just like all right, what's he have to say? <laughs> um, so you have a native plant sanctuary up, up at your place, huh? Yeah, I've been working on some woodland gardens, mm-hmm. um, focusing. Planting ginseng and golden seal and the cohoshes and bloodroot, and that, that's been a, a focus for a, a few years now. I've been at this uh, piece of land for about nine years. Mm-hmm. So soon after getting started planting, yeah. And and then so, you said it was your 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 wife that convinced you that there was no such thing as a weed. Yeah, that, a long time ago. Back when I was in Chinese medicine school, I was with her and um, gardening, and it, the subject came up, you know, and about weeds. And um, I hadn't put much thought into it at that point, but over time, it's really made sense. And and beginning to see these plants all over the place, and recognizing them also from my studies as a Chinese herbalist as well. So. Yeah, it started a while ago, understanding these plants and not necessarily having a prejudice against them, just trying to understand why they're there. Well, um, Emerson said, a weed is a plant whose virtues have not yet been discovered. So what's your what's your def- definition of a weed? <laughs> yeah, that, well, I, I definitely follow along his lines there. And, um, you know... There is a lot of controversy around the basic definition of a weed, but essentially it started almost 10,000 years ago when we started agricultural systems and began to discriminate between the good plants and bad plants, those that we wanted to raise as crops uh, versus those who were sneaking in to the disturbed soil. So this sort of indoctrination of Good and bad plants started a long time ago, and it's sort of excelled to the point where we're at now, where we're really fighting these these weeds, these plants that are almost everywhere. Um, so, all of these plants really are serving an ecological niche in it. Then, yes, yeah. you know it. 
I think, yeah, the, every plant has a purpose where it's at. And most of these widely dispersed plants are also considered pioneer plants, the, those plants that uh, move into those areas of disruption, whether it's through natural disruptions, you know, wind fall-downs of forests, or if it's clear-cutting land, um, these plants are usually the first to arrive. And by arriving there, they're, one, helping stabilize the, the structure of the soil and helping prevent further runoff. And generally over time, you know, the, the, the plant species change, and as the forest regrows in this case, it allows for new species to move in and eventually, in the natural course of things, would return to a forest state. Um, so, yes, these, these plants are oftentimes attracted to these areas where there needs to be soil stabilization and other potential benefits, too, as far as potentially helping remediate these lands that are contaminated and toxified mm-hmm. by, dif- by different means. Now, let's take a, a plant um, as an example um, to talk about that on an ecological level, like mullein, for example. I'm sorry, which one? Uh, mullein. Mullein, yes. Yes. So, yes, I, you know, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, our connection. Sorry, folks. Our connection is a little, a little bit of lapse on it, so uh, we're doing our best here. But, uh, <laughs> but so if there's a little, but I was just asking about mullein and how that um, works in the, you know, with what you were just saying and 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 its part in this secession that you were talking about. Right, right. Well, mullein is one of those plants that often colonizes um, land after there's been four fires mm-hmm. and. Um, these plants move in, and I liken it to, you know, their their soft, blankety leaves that sort of cover the land and help the land regenerate after the disturbance of fire. And it seems as though the plant takes over the land, but after a few years pass, it allows all their species to move in. So, you know, initially looking at it on the short term, you would say that's an invasive species that's taking over the place. But from a, if you step back a little bit and look at it from a, a little longer time scale, you'll see how that changes and how that plant has moved in there at first, and then it, it, it helps support that soil, that land, and then gradually retreats as all their plants start to move in. Mm-hmm. And... Um what about that? Can, there's a connection that you were making between that, um, like you saying, like it's um, for. Re- it's, there's this like connection between what it's doing uh, there um, ecologically and also possibly medicinally. Right. Yeah. I. It, it is one of those plants that helps inflamed tissues, and in a way, fiery tissue that specifically the lungs. And with it arriving at this place where there has been this fire, this heat, excessive heat, it, in a way is 
is that anti-inflammatory medicine for the land. And at the same time, it, it provides that same kind of medicine to humans as well, helping the inflamed tissues, specifically our lungs, um, with those fiery conditions. Are, so there's a neat are, are you, do you Have you found that in your... That's really fascinating, and I always kind of found... I, now, when I read your book, I didn't really thought about mullen in that. I mean, I've heard that with some... Um, like, like I've heard Stephen Buhner talk about lichen in that sense, um, how it's um, like um, in all of the treetops and it's like the avioli and it uh, reminds you of that when you look at it. And uh, it's also good for our lungs and all like that's the first time like that was years ago, I think like 10 years ago or so when I saw him speak, he was talking about that. And that just blew me away. And um, I really liked in this book. You know, when you started talking about that, because it's something that's just, I think, really fascinating and something that there's a there's such a truth behind all of that that we connect with. It's I don't know. You know, it's like it doesn't seem quite like all like scientifically logical, but somehow like we just know that makes sense. And so um, what else are any other plants stand out like this to you like like how you just mentioned with mullen um as far as in, in invasive plants go well you know one of the plants i have one of my favorite plants is japanese knotweed and one of the things that buner pointed out to me uh, a number of years ago was how knotweed was essentially moving in the same trajectory and at the same rate as Lyme disease had moved into the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that was at first, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. And, you know, how to how to validate that was, you know, my quest. And, you know, as I began talking to people from the area, they would begin talking about this plant, how it just recently moved in. Um, and have, has taken over, and, and these people are complaining about Lyme disease and, and how the, the plant just took over their, their land and arriving soon around the same time that, you know, they contracted Lyme disease. And, you know, it was really neat when I started looking into this more and, and, and finding sources in, for my book, I, I found these two maps, mm. one for the distribution and areas where Japanese knotweed was considered invasive and another map, say, describing where Lyme disease was most prevalent. And it was fascinating to see basically the same areas overlap. Wow. And, and so, you know, that, that was just an added confirmation to, again, like what you're talking about, just it sort of makes sense at a, a deeper level. It's just hard to, you know, scientifically validate these sorts of things. Right, right, right. Um, so I want to. We'll get to a bit more of that, and I want to ask you some more about Japanese knotweed and all in a little bit, um, for sure. Um, now, you know, you're saying, um, well, let's see. What was really interesting how you're saying that these, well, along the lines of what we were just saying, that these plants really are here for a reason. So what is that reason why, why these, you know, and these, these plants are taken over? And we should probably define, um, 
you know, for some folks not sure exactly what we first, perhaps what we mean by invasive plants and giving some examples. Um, like we just mentioned something like Japanese knotweed, but that might not be familiar to people. I mean, we're talking like, you know, dandelion and plantain and all the very common plants that we often see right outside our door, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, the definition of an invasive plant these days is an alien species whose introduction does or is likely to cause economic or environmental harm Mm-hmm. Or harm to human health. So that's that's a, the official definition of an invasive species. And you know, th- there's many questions that come up just knowing that definition. You know, one, you know, how do you properly define an alien and a native species? Mm-hmm. You know, it, these days, you know, the basic time scale for a definition of an alien is a plant that arrived after Europeans colonized this continent. And so that's the date that's given 500 years ago. And so, you know, from this, from that time, you know, people were bringing these plants for all good reasons. And there was, you know, policies by the government to continue to bring in these plants. And so there's so many factors that add up to why these plants are so widely dispersed. It's not a single answer, and it, and it really depends on each individual ecosystem because they're all unique. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one, people have been spreading these plants on their own for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. purposefully and by accident. So at the root of all this, of this spread is, you know, a lot of mostly human cause. And, you know, as we have entered more the industrial age of the last hundred years or so, these plants have also become more present and widely dispersed. We see them as they're also, they're indicating a lot of our imbalances with the environment in which we live in. Mm -hmm. All the destruction and expansion that humans have have done over the last hundred years that's really been a huge hand into moving these plants around and again they're these plants are the pioneer species so once that land is disturbed these plants like to move into there now now i gotta i gotta ask you something here that that since since i got you on here is something that i always wondered <laughs> see what you think uh-huh. about this just exactly what you were just saying there is that could it be okay when before the Europeans started colonizing the area, I mean, m- the most part you, you had were intact environments that had, had had been able to fulfill themselves to their mature state and were maintained and left that way for a long, long time. So, you know, it, it, could it be that, you know, these the seeds of all these invasive plants and all are already there? It's just that because they started clearing the land, they were like, hey, opportunities, right? That's t- yeah, that's you know that's very well possible. Um, I think that that definitely could be true. And you know, plants have been moving even before you know humans came along to this continent. You know, plants mm-hmm. have jumped whole oceans and um, come to new lands that they previously didn't inhabit. So, yeah, and I think there is that possibility that these. Seeds were already here. 
just waiting. And you know, to, I think to, yeah, to, to, just like the the forest plants are, there are probably a lot of seeds still around too. And then if the you know if the conditions became right again for for them, they could very well come back as well. Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. That's really that's a, so 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 really. Um, you know, there's, um, um, yeah, you know, so did, did, did they take over in sync with the industrial age and, you know, and, and also could they, um, you know, be here to heal the wounds of the industrial age? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that, that, that is my take on the situation for the most part. Mm-hmm. You know, as I started diving into some of these plants and what the, the, their ecological benefits might be, I, I began discovering that a lot of these plants, one, they flourish on an intoxic environment, oftentimes, the disturbed toxic environment. So where there was mining or agricultural runoff, these plants were more likely to gravitate to these areas. And as I started looking into that and, and finding the specific um, area, which is called phytoremediation, using plants to clean toxic soils, mm-hmm. uh, I saw that m- many of these plants were involved in this capacity. Hmm. So one of the highlights of that was the plant's the common reed, or phragmites. And when I was searching for this information, I, I, I didn't really realize what I might find, but when what I discovered was that this plant is probably the most important remediating plant for soils and wetland systems, and that it can effectively clean, you know, sewage, wastewater, heavy metals, at least 15 heavy metals, um, at least 11 common toxic pollutants, including herbicides and petroleum and TNT and PDT mm-hmm. wow. and PCBs and, mm-hmm. and all these other things. And this plant has also been used throughout the world for cleaning municipal wastewater systems industrial wastewater systems. So this, but at the same time, this plant's been labeled as this noxious invasive species that people are trying to get rid of. While in actuality, it's thriving in the wetland systems and helping clean these pollutants from the soils and water which they, they grow. So, so, and you'll so, see it growing expansively along roadsides. So it just gets all the runoff from the highways and roads, and and those areas must be some of the toxic land around us. So, so I got a question then. When I when I grew up in New Jersey, uh, when I'm driving up north, and I just remember, you know, you're going along the Parkway up there, and you just see miles and miles of ragmites, right? The reeds all all yep. through there, out there. Um, did those just kind of show up, or were they planted? I I always kind of had the sense that. They were planted like by somebody because they knew that. Um, but did they just show up in that area and started doing their thing? 
you know, I think some of it was planted and a lot of it expanded from there. Um, it is one of those stabilizers. So, you know, it, it very well could have been planted originally when they first made the roads there to just stabilize that soil along the roads. Oh. So, but, you know, with it also tolerating more wet areas, too. Mm. Mm. I'm sure they, I'm sh- I would imagine it was planted to a certain degree, but it's really, you know, taken over that whole landscape on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so, and then it is doing the job then to clean it up. Now, now here's something that I, I, I'm sure people have wondered too. When you're saying that, you know, these uh, plants like that are, can absorb the heavy metals and toxins and the soil and everything. And, and, you know, in my area, we've got, you know, this, it's Blackberry World out here. (laughs) Uh, Blackberries would, you know, would be just blackberries and dandelions and, cockroaches left over after the clear holocaust now but but um now when these are purposely planted um are for that reason of absorption are they ever um harvested and processed to get rid of those so they just leave the plants there and what if they want to use that like if they decide hey we want to build something here now or use it do they how do they handle those plants you know what do they do yeah, that's a good question, and, and I think it um, it depends on the situation. In some cases, it, you know, there's different types of phytoremediation. Sometimes the plants will just um, capture the the toxin and stabilize it mm-hmm. within their plant body. Sometimes they can transform and neutralize those toxins. Uh-huh. And and it's enters back into the system in a less toxic form, mm-hmm. um, and and then sometimes these plants have been can capture these metals and they can be further harvested and you can extract those metals back out of from that plant, uh, basic bio mining of the plant and these these metals. Wow. That have accumulated in them, so and in so doing, you not only you you basically take the plant material to a to a, a facility that burns it and creates um, biomass power, in addition to recovering some of these metals back out of it. Are there are, are there people? Is that being done right now? Like, what is it done in this country or what part of the world? Are there people who are gathering biomass and doing that? That's it, there's there's a little bit going on around here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Rufus Cheney, I believe, up in um, Cornell is one of the folks who are who are doing this with plants, and uh, Europe is definitely um, ahead of the game. With that, I know... Usually are. (laughs) Yeah. I want to say Sweden uses this plant for biomass energy sources. Um, And, you know, this whole science of using these plants is relatively new, only coming about since the 90s. So Mm. it's a fairly whole new industry coming about. Amazing. So, so, so there, so this is what you're saying here, you know, there's people doing some research doing that. There's a, you know you know, possibilities of, of invasive plants being used for, but you know, then there's a whole part of, um, where I was reading, you were talking about how, you know, at one time the United States 
had an uh, office of plant introduction and and i imagine that was what like the 19th century or something that they were doing that where they brought in like maybe even yeah so yeah probably 17 and 1800s yeah and there are 200 not 200,000 non-native species were brought in is that what you said yeah <laughs> that's yeah. crazy and 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 so and so but now the government is more um the opposite where they have this uh like real you know one of their wars like war on 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 on, on noxious weeds and um now i mean so so it's really come a, so, so at the same time there's some of this stuff going on but uh, but but also there's this this whole you know battle uh, that the government has uh, seemingly waged on these plants at the same time and and um so talk about that a little bit i'm i'm really curious about like how that happened. Yeah. You know, when the f- country was first starting out and trying to get established, they were promoting these plants like crazy and trying to bring everything in and and brought these plants in for a variety of reasons, economic mm-hmm. and, and medical reasons, um, landscaping and curiosity reasons. So they're really into learning them what can grow here and what they could make use of. And it really started to change at the beginning of the 1900s when that's when you first saw some of these widespread laws of um, getting rid of these invasive plants mm-hmm. start to take place. It was mostly farmers mm. who were putting um, you know, they were starting to take over the cropland in the Midwest and heading out west, and and they didn't want these plants uh, along with their crops. So, and from that time, it's it, it was primarily um, farmers and livestock ranchers promoting this, and only towards the end of the 1900s did it start to turn into this more widespread war. And battle against plants, and uh, more um, nature organizations starting to address these plants, and tourist organization organizations, and whatnot. So um, it's really things have amped up in the last ten years or so um, regarding these plants. But the approach seems to be, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, from it seems to be that their approach is more chemical to get rid of versus rehabilitating habitat conditions for the native plants. So that's, is that true? Yes. And, you know, in my book, I I talk about some of that funding too. And it's obvious that the funding is geared towards eradication and not towards rehabilitation. And, you know, as you look further and see, hello. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let me As you look farther (laughs) and see, at who is potentially instigating this? You see the the herbicides companies promoting um, this agenda. Ah, man! And <laughs> yeah, and so there they are at the at the center of this battle too. Just like you know, all our wars that we're we're fighting against in this country. Some big chemical company is at the core of it. It seems. Yeah. Or yes. Some. Oh. You know, promoting policy and funding policy is is their business. So um, they've had a good upper hand lately. 
And, and 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 it really is brilliant in a way on the part of those companies. I mean, not to t- I'm not taking their side or anything, but it's just kind of like how these defense companies know that if they just stir up, you know, war in in a crazy unstable part of the world, it'll just perpetuate and having a need for their product, like over in the Middle East, for example. Uh, whereas the same, it's almost the same analogy where they're like, they've got to know there's no way they they can ever eradicate all these weeds, so they're always going to be in business or something. Yes, and in in a lot of these cases, they're making these weed terrorists stronger too. You know, by you know, fighting so hard and and manipulating them because you know these weeds want to survive. These plants want to survive, and they're very adaptable and are learning to become resistant to these herbicides. So it just you know it, the new herbicides come out. It's just yeah, perpetual. And 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 you know, for the most part, with invasive species. For 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 far for farming and most purposes are you know are, pre- are pretty easy to live with when you know if they if, if approached right but I mean I, I I guess that there's some real concern ones like you know like if you don't do something it'll take over like your kudzu or your blackberries right. and that kind so is there are there different levels that they kind of really kind of look to work with I mean nobody's trying to except for you know except for on a lawn to lawn level nobody's really going out there and trying to eradicate the dandelions right yeah these days yeah they're using planes with herbicides going over ranch lands and in the southwest they're targeting tamarisk which is all throughout the arroyos there and and yes they are you know it is a larger scale movement that is you know propelling masses at a lower scale to you know get rid of these plants and 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 promoting this this mentality at, at all levels. Now you're saying though in the in here that because some people listening are going to go, yeah, but you know this these plants in the arroyos or these plants that are you know blackberries taking over this huge area, the kudzu taking over the you know they they you know yeah. really got to be dealt with or something. But you're saying that like you know this is just the beginning of a, a succession of healing towards. You know the creation of a more you know advanced botanical environment that they're just it's kind of like small thinking to just kind of you know they're, they're, in other words they're they're there for a reason. Yes, and and you know if we are going to try to get rid of them, let's make use of them and make them into medicine or in some cases food or in all our cases oils. You know, it, it really depends on the plant, but there are other ways to approach these plants and get rid of these plants if you so choose to, uh, using all their means and not necessarily chemical disruptive means that will further, you know, help propel the spread of this plant. You know, this, the plant, these plants like the disruption and in a way, in some cases, they, they like the toxins too that they're applying. And so, and, and those herbicides are, are not only going to affect those plants, but it affects all the plant species alike. And so my main take is, yes, these plants are here for a reason and, and for likely good reasons. And if we're going to get rid of them, let's think about it a little bit and, and see why they might be there first and then 
how to make better use of the plant instead of just trying to kill it and get rid of it because these plants do have um, useful purposes. Mm. So, so, so instead of, you know, uh, clearing perfectly good land, the plant crops that you're going to use for biofuels, why not just harvest these plants for biofuels? Exactly. Exactly. That is one place to start and stop diverting food crops for biomass purposes is is one thing that I think would be helpful. Mm, that's really and so let you know let's let's move on to medicines then since you know uh, that's a big part of the the book that you have um, here um, and um, and I wouldn't mind uh, you know since yeah, since we're you know you've, you've 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 done a lot of work and research in Lyme disease. Um, <laughs> You tell a story in there about people um, that concludes that Lyme disease was um, was actually, you know, can be, you know, like people thought that it would, like there was this thing where people thought it was brought, a uh, study where it was brought on by certain plants, like, but it would, those plants yeah. were actually a cure. <laughs> yeah. So what, yeah. yeah, tell that one. That was really good. I, I really thought that was Yeah, there's good. a, the, there's a, um, main medical research company that was, like you said, looking for the, the causes of spread to, of the spread of Lyme disease mm-hmm. and went into the stands of invasive plants of Japanese honeysuckle and blackberry. And they found that the ticks, there's greater number of ticks on these plants and therefore concluded it was the plants that are helping spread this disease. (laughs) And when I started looking into these two plants, specifically Japanese honeysuckle and barberry, I found that they, one, the the barberry constituent coptis has been, or uh, berberine has been used for the treatment of Lyme disease already, and honeysuckle has some, studies in there relating to syphilis and all their infectious diseases. So I came to the conclusion that these plants are actually the remedies to Lyme disease. Is that sort of like a like cures like kind of thing? <laughs> yeah, it, it sort of is. And it, it, and it sort of makes sense. You know, invasive plants for treating invasive diseases like this. And I, I found that to be true to a great extent throughout many of these plants. Many of these plants have strong antimicrobial properties, antitoxin properties, helping the liver detoxify. And so, yes, there's this this synergy between the two that, that it's really neat how they mirror each other. So, so you always hear about, like, oh, we've got to go to the rainforest to find this one little plant that's going to have the miracle cure of whatever, but meanwhile, it's all right under our noses. Yes, yes, in most cases it is. <laughs> Gosh. It does take us a while to realize that. Yeah, because we want something more exotic than blackberry root. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, you know, the Northwest up here could have a whole nother industry that doesn't even know, you know. <laughs> exactly, and, you know, that's that's part of it. This, these plants can provide these micro-industries 
for the the populations in which they grow. Mm-hmm. You know, it, and and you know, cottage industries of herbalists collecting these plants, and then, you know, instead of importing kudzu from China, get it from the southeast. You know, China is actually importing a lot of the southeastern kudzu these days because it is so plentiful. Wow, and, so, then, and, then, and then we and then we when we buy it back in pills. <laughs> yeah, oftentimes, yes, oh, yes, yes. Yes. Oh. So there, there are so many great opportunities here. I see it as great opportunity because they are so prevalent everywhere. Mm. Yeah, you know, because I, I often a lot of herbalists will say like, "Oh, you know, you want to use the plants that grow right side our door because often, you know, they're." They follow us, like you know, if we need a certain plant that uh, it's probably growing right outside our door. And and the thing is, like, I, I I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I believe that these plants, like, oh, I have a liver issue. Wow, what do you know? Dandelion just happened to pop up in my yard. I mean, that's a little too far fetched for me. But then again, like, um, you know, those invasive plants just are everywhere anyway, so they're probably just there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and. <laughs> A lot of us, almost everyone of us could use some dandelion exactly. on a regular basis. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So um, a Japanese knotweed, um, you know, that, that fascinated me. Um, when I was reading your book, a couple of plants really fascinated me in here because, um, you know, you, you, you hear – if you're, when I guess when I when I picked it up, I was thinking, oh, you know, this is great because hey, I love dandelion and plantain, and I love uh, some of these books and I mean these herbs and and I use them a lot, and and this must be what the book is about. But um, when I when I opened it um, and even looked in the last section, the last part which has a lot of plant monographs, a lot of information in there about specific plants, um, the ones that really struck me, a couple of them specifically were like uh, Ilanthus, Tree of Heaven, which is really prevalent. Uh, back east, um, um, yeah, I haven't really seen any in the northwest here, but I remember it uh, from one in the east coast, and then in Japanese knotweed, which I, I met when I was a northwest resident here, so I never really saw it in the east coast. Uh-huh. Uh, but it is tons of it out here too. In fact, we we harvest it, and when it's in shoots and, and make crisp with apples and you know like make a dessert with it yeah. <laughs> um and then and then that you're that you that these are some of the plants that you were talking about and so that was really cool like and i was like wow i never really you know realized that ilanthus and japanese knotweed had such were so incredibly medicinal and and even researched you know that that blew me away i never really thought about japanese knotweed and so uh, t- talk about Japanese knotweed and, and your experience with it. Yeah, well, I again was introduced to it back by the owner treating Lyme disease, and um, that was 2004. And, and basically, I, at that point, I was harvesting knotweed my own and and grinding it up into powder and encapsulating it for those folks who came to see me for Lyme and. Um, so I got to know it very personally that way. And basically it's the plant that I most use in my practice and go through quite a, a, a bit of it. And I've been using it specifically for the central nervous systems related to Lyme disease. You know, there's often brain fog and memory issues, um, all their central nervous system issues that are impinged and affected. And 
with that as well, with its strong influence on the central nervous system, it also has the ability to address all their cerebral issues as far as potentially Parkinson's and um, Alzheimer's and all their neurodegenerative diseases. It contains that compound resveratrol, which has gained a lot of notoriety lately as that the, the benefit of drinking red wine. Oh. And knotweed contains more resveratrol than any other plant in the world. And pharmaceutical companies are buying out all their pharmaceutical companies for hundreds of millions of dollars because of this single compound. And oftentimes these supplement companies and pharmaceutical companies harvest knotweed specifically for this, this compound. So um, there's a lot of research out there on resveratrol, and it is the main compound, but it, it, knotweed contains many other um, other compounds that have been studied throughout the world um, for their, you know, anti-inflammatory and life-enhancing abilities. And is it something you take on a use on a regular basis as well, or is it just when you have a situation um, where you might need it? You know, I I'm taking it on a regular basis myself, and thinking of it as you know that resveratrol. You know, supplement, but also knowing that the plant is—I I, I think of it also as a, a tonic in a way, strengthening the immune system from a, a deeper area. Um, also helping um, brain function overall. And I haven't had any issues with folks taking it long term and use it both in acute and chronic cases and increase to potentially pretty high doses wow. of the herbs for an extended period of time. Wow. So on a, on a regular basis, if someone was taking that, was just like if you tinctured it, you're just taking a dropper or something a day, or is it there? What, what, what's effective? Yeah. You know, is it's, it's... Yeah. It, base dose like that, a, a dropper full or a capsule two or three times a day. Mm. Well, I'm just, you know, some on our, on our site, we often talk about, you know, plants are taken on a regular basis. We often focus mostly on nourishing herbs and herbal infusions yep. and things like that. But this is more of a tonic type of plant where you would have on a regular basis, but in a small amount, right? Yeah. You know, that's a good place to start. And, you know, especially if you're not dealing with Lyme disease. So yes, you could take it on a, on a extended time scale at smaller doses as a tonic. Mm. Yes. Now, yeah. it, are, are, it's also, go ahead. Sorry. But also use it as uh, a prevention too. Uh, th that was my question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so prevention, exactly. Um, prevention. You can actually yeah. prevent. Like if you get bitten by a, a deer tick and the spirochete enters your system, you you can actually prevent Lyme's disease from happening. Well, you know, the idea is to keep your immune system strong, mm. ideally, and if you have some of these herbal compounds that address an infection at the same time, then yes, it can help potentially prevent or help um, the severity if there is an infection, if you're taking it ahead of time. You know, that's, knotweed is, is, as far as prevention, is secondary. I would use astragalus, obviously, right. as a, a good tonic. Right. Overall, and that would... Right. 
for a good prevention. I, I, I guess I never thought of a, you know, like, you know, like we all know about the cold, you can have a room full of people and they all can have a cold virus and no, you know, and, and if all those people have strong immune systems, they're not going to pick it up. Or maybe if two people are stressed out and they'll yeah. be the ones to pick it up, you know, that the, these viruses are always around us. That is when we have a weakened immune system. And, and so that, um, I, I always just kind of thought it's like Lyme disease is one of these, uh, uh, or the or the the spirochete is one of these like we're just going to get in there anyway and drill our way in there and there's nothing you can do about it. So you're saying that's not the case necessarily. That if you have a really strong if you have a strong immune system, that very well you you might not get it. Yes, and you know when coming to Lyme disease, it's it, there's a lot of controversy and there's it, it, it's difficult to say with certainty anything about Lyme disease. So with that, you know. If someone is still infected with Lyme disease, but they have a stronger constitution and healthy immune system, they're less likely to have the full effects, whereas vice versa. If you have a compromised immune system and get infected, then you're more likely to get you know, really sick and chronic. But definitely some people can still get it and keep it at bay for years and on end if, if, if they do keep their system strong. So... so- it can it can actually go then just dormant in your system and you and then you so you, you you can either get it and get effects you can either just not let it take hold and it just or or the third option is that you know it go, gets does get in you but it goes dormant and 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 it's waiting for the right opportunity to a weak a weakened stressed immune system to to come out favorable conditions yeah. So it can be yeah. either of all of the or you know one or yeah because I, yeah. I I remember getting it one time and. It was, you know, they they knew enough to that to raise awareness about the uh, the bullseye ring which I had, and I went and I took a course of antibiotics, and then I never had a symptom, you know, after that. Yep. But um, but you 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 yourself have have had it and actually dealt with it all with herbs. Yes. Yes. Wow. I I got pretty sick myself and and chose not to use antibiotics. Yeah. And then right, and that's and uh, so you, that's what you, that's a great story to read in your book as well because that was um, you know pretty cool yeah. like that was because uh, because that's one of those you know you know where I live some West Coast people might not be going oh yeah well don't worry about that yeah. you know there's not Lyme disease out here but you know there is because uh, I have a friend yeah. it's it's not it's not it's not a uh, you know is prevalent. But um, there's a lot of people with weird symptoms that are getting misdiagnosed out here because it's not that common. And I do have a friend who's convinced that he had Lyme disease, and I I knew the symptoms he was going through. And then when he said that, I went, "Oh, you're right. That's got to be it." So, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's one of those things that's getting to be everywhere, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Yeah, it's just, um, and 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 what's really cool is that on Green Dragon Botanicals, if uh, I guess a step someone would do if they had Lyme disease would would probably be buy Stephen Buner's book, uh, which you yeah. should do uh, <laughs> if you have Lyme disease or want to learn about it ahead of time. Um, but um, what's cool is that your site, Green Dragon Botanicals, is that you're processing and selling. Uh, herbs, uh, you know, in relation to the protocols that he talks about in there, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, I used to use all the individual herbs, and um, I, at a certain point, I I tried to put them all together, and people really liked it, and the response was really good, and 
And so I, it sort of took off that way. And, and it, it, with people with Lyme, it, it's really helpful to make things as simple as possible. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of my objective here, to simplify things and make it easier for folks to take it on a long-term basis. Mm. So, yeah, and, and now it's, you know, it's one of my main things right now, and, and knotweed is, you know, the main herb that I and selling through there, yeah. And 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 so the the not and the not weed in the in the capsules, a big part of the formulas that you're putting together. People just like if they have Lyme disease, that they're just taking a cut. All it needs is a couple of capsules of this, and it gets in your bloodstream somehow and helps out. Like just that little bit, it always amazes me. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, we do potentially go up to pretty high doses. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, they're they're pretty potent herbs wow and so yeah it doesn't you know it's different for everyone and sometimes just a little is all they need and strong the herbs are strong enough that way right and you always recommend you recommend that if somebody has a chronic illness like that that they just you know they're, they're that they're working with someone who's knowledgeable um and yeah, kind of getting okay they should have just go and uh, you know just start you know treating themselves that way if they're not sure Right, right. That's that's wise to consult with someone. But a lot of people they don't have. You know, I I don't know what your opinion on this is, but a lot of people, um, you know, especially members of, of our site, they come from all over and they come from places that a lot of times from places where, you know, they don't they don't have. A, they're not living in Vermont or they're not living in Washington State where there's a lot of natural health people where they can go and consult with and and learn from and. And so where do people turn? Like if someone's, you know, living kind of further out and doesn't, or lives in, you know, miles and miles from a place where there's, um, you know, their consultants or people they can talk to, what do you recommend that they, they do if they say, oh, I've got Lyme disease and, you know, what, what would be their steps to, to get that figured out? Yeah. Well, I think, yes, the book is the first and foremost place to start. Mm-hmm. An excellent book, not only describing the illness and the spirochetes themselves, but the, the herbal protocol that I make use of. And, you know, I do talk over the phone with a lot of folks mm-hmm. who aren't near, and and that does, is a good place to start, you know, get things started that way. And, and you know, as they begin to understand how the herbs work and they see how it's affecting them, they most people can get a good handle on that themselves and over the long term begin to figure out how to work with it. But um, to get going, I, I often do phone consults. Okay, that's good. I know we kind of morphed the conversation towards Lyme disease treatment, but I, I just I realized as I opened that can of worms that uh, I kind of had to go in that direction because people are going to be listening to yeah. this and wanting to know, like, you know, because that is something that comes up. Um, so, um, but in, book, in, in the book, Invasive Plant Medicine, you do – go in to detail. I mean, I'm just flipping through here and I see information on barberry, bindweed, blackberry, dandelion, ivy, honeysuckle, knotweed, thistles, kudzu, uh, plantain, loose strife, reeds, you know, scotch broom, um, ailanthus, uh, white mulberry, wild mustards, rose. I mean, that's just some of them that you have detailed information in here that has, um, you know, about plant chemistry and pharmacological actions and dosage and harvesting and preparing. So if we want to get 
us on a specific level uh, to learn more about these, um, you know, we learned a little bit about knotweed here. Um, but of course there's only so much you can cover in a short interview. Um, Artemisia, uh, got color photos in here, um, that we recommend just taking a look in the book, of course. Um, and also just some of these, um, larger ecological and medicinal perspectives on invasive plants that, you know, I got to, you know, congratulate you on doing such a nice, concise job on putting that all in a nice package for us. Like, you know, like it's never really been done before. Um, um, cause I've always been the person, uh, around here. I, when you're <laughs> Tim, I don't know about out there, but you get a lot of folks who get into plants and they really want to put stuff in a box you know, they really want to say like, all right, it's all about native plants and we're just going to do it. We're just all we're going to do. And sometimes it's just so hard ideologically to go into that explanation with people about why you might want to think about dandelions or some using some of these other plants. Right. Do you find do you have that in your area, too, uh, that they're like, oh, I just do native plants? <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of that around. Yes. And, you know, it, and it's I. I'm definitely all for native plants myself, of course. especially the endangered ones. Mm-hmm. And and yes, we, you know, at this point, we're all native here. You know, at a certain point, we're all part of this global planet, this native Earth. And yes, it is sort of um, how do we step out and and sort of try to see this thing from a, a greater perspective. And how to make use of that which is around us, because obviously things aren't aren't going well for us with the way we're doing it, and mm-hmm. so we do need to make a change. And, and specifically, in my case, the this is idea of invasive plants, and and you know they're all plants, and there's no such thing as a good and a bad plant, as far as I'm concerned. So, um, it's, it's hard for me to hear some of that negative rhetoric too. Um, though I, I do understand it. Um, but you know, it, the plant, a plant is a plant. And, um, it's like, you can't control it. You can't like, you can't put the plants in a box and these invasive species have proven that. So you might as well just go look and see, okay, how can we use this to better our planet and move forward while protecting and reestablishing native habitats? We can do it all at the same time. Yeah. Tim, thanks a lot for that. It's been really great to have you on. And, um, now are you going to be at the international herb symposium? Yes, I'm going to be at the International. I'll be teaching a couple of classes, one on invasive plants and one on Lyme disease. Well, perfect. So, yeah. <laughs> I just want to You're say that to uh, get there. I just want to say that learningherbs.com is a um, proud sponsor of the International Herb Symposium and that is in Massachusetts in uh in towards late June in 2000 if you're listening to this uh at a later time uh in the future but uh this is in 2011 we're talking about so uh you can go to internationalherbsymposium.org or just uh I think it's org uh but anyway just google international herb symposium and it'll come right up I uh, highly recommend it it's um tons of people there amazing herbalists and for um your book, Tim, you have invasiveplantmedicine.com. Yes. 
And for Lyme disease and all your treatments that you do, greendragonbotanicals.com. But I found it interesting that you actually sell the book on greendragonbotanicals.com, but not on the invasiveplantmedicine.com site. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I should do something about that. Yeah, you got to work on that, or at least have a link, like buy buy here and then convert. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you can get um, Stephen Buner's uh, Lyme disease book at Tim's site as well, um, in addition to all his great uh, Japanese knotweed remedies. But you can read about the book at invasiveplantmedicine.com, and um, that's great. And, and if you get it from you, Tim, I always recommend buying it from the author. So please go there because it supports the author. They get more of a cut. And, um, and uh, will you autograph it for people? Or? I would love to, yes. <laughs> great. Great. Um, and uh, also, if uh, you can check out invasiveplantmedicine.com for, for speaking engagement dates, too. Um, so, but I recommend going to the International Herb Symposium because it's rocks and you can see Tim and all these other amazing herbalists. All right. So, um, Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking your time. Yeah. You're welcome, John. Thanks for having me. Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com is a production of LearningHerbs.com. Visit LearningHerbs.com for free herbal lessons, including Herb Mentor news, home remedy secrets, and supermarket herbalism. You'll also find the herbal medicine making kit and our board game Wildcraft. Herb Mentor Radio, copyright LearningHerbs.com, all rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening.